Amen. So uh, we're sort of at the end of this account of Joseph. And, um, you know, we have uh, his whole circumstance with his 11 brothers and his um, spiritual gifts that the Lord has given him cause uh, them to be jealous and embittered toward him. Uh, that eventually results in a plot to kill him, which is uh, thwarted by one of his brothers, where they end up instead selling him off as a slave uh, to traders that are traveling uh, through the area. He's given or sold to a uh, prominent Egyptian, uh, Potiphar, and is a servant in his household, uh, becomes a head steward over the other servants in Potiphar's household. Potiphar's wife uh, has a sexual longing for him and pursues him very vehemently. He shuns her. Eventually, there's an altercation where she tries to force herself upon him, and he flees. She accuses him of rape falsely. He's arrested, thrown into prison, rises quickly, apparently, to a position of authority in the prison. As an inmate, he's in charge of all of the others. Uh, two of Pharaoh's stewards are imprisoned for apparently an attempt on Pharaoh's life. They have dreams. Joseph interprets them. Uh, apparently, Pharaoh decides who it was that was trying to kill him, executes one man, restores the man, other to his uh, position of power. Subsequently, Pharaoh has a dream. And there, the steward who has been restored to his position remembers that Joseph had this ability to interpret dreams, explains that to Pharaoh. Pharaoh calls for Joseph. Joseph comes, interprets the dream, which has to do with a famine that is going to come in seven years. So seven years of abundance is going to occur first, and then seven years of famine. Joseph makes the interpretation of the dream as the Lord gives it to him. Because of his wisdom, Pharaoh puts him in power and gives him the authority over everything that is under the control of the Egyptians, uh, making the statement that the only one that will be greater than Joseph will be Pharaoh himself. The, the famine has struck. Uh, Joseph's brothers starving in their uh, homeland in Canaan venture to Egypt, hearing that there's food there. Um, they... Uh, meet Joseph, don't recognize him. He gives them food, sends them home because he wants uh, to see uh, Benjamin, his younger brother. Uh, they run out of food. They have to come back with Benjamin. And now they still don't recognize him. He has this occasion where all of them are in his presence. And uh, in chapter 43, if you drop down to verse 33, it says, they sat before him, that's Joseph, and the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. So he sets them in order of their birth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another because of this supposed wisdom that Joseph has. To them, it seems supernatural that he would be able to understand uh, their birth order. And he seats them in these positions. Then he took servings to them from before them, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. Uh, that is because Joseph 
uh, his mother, each of the other brothers, have a different mother. Joseph's one uh, brother by the same mother is Benjamin. So he has this special uh, connection uh, with uh, his younger brother, uh, Benjamin. So they drank and were merry with him. Verse 1 of chapter 44, And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Now he's done this to them once already, where when they came to buy food the first time, he put their money back into the grain sacks and sent them home. Um, Throughout this, what you're seeing is Joseph is testing their honesty. And they have been incredibly deceptive, incredibly dishonest, incredibly murderous men. And he's, he's wanting to test and see where they are. Now, uh, there's a spiritual principle uh, within this that is uh, very important, and that is the idea of the genuineness of our faith. There are so many people that make confessions with their mouth of faith, and yet through their behavior prove that there is none. And that's exactly what Joseph is doing, is seeing where are these guys. Has time changed them? Has circumstance taught them? Have they grown at all spiritually in a relationship with the Lord? And that proves out. You'll see exactly what I'm saying as we move on. So he's putting the money for the second time uh, back into uh, the sack. He put the silver cup, it says in verse 2, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain uh, money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Now the silver cup is going to become significant as we move forward uh, as soon As the morning dawned, the men were sent away, then they and their donkeys, when they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which He indeed practices divination. You have done evil in so doing. Now, we're going to address the fact that Joseph does not, in fact, practice divination. Uh, He's playing on uh, what their perception is. Um, there, There is already this mindset amongst the Egyptians that Joseph has some kind of of supernatural power within himself. Uh, He has addressed that, and we'll look at some verses particularly in a moment, where he explains, I don't have any capabilities. This is God's capability, and God gives me this understanding. So it's not something that I have of a power within myself. Uh, Here, the Egyptians think it's his power, and they uh, give him this authority. Uh, Pharaoh has made the statement We need to put Joseph in charge because who can find a person who has the spirit of God in them? So there's this supernatural sense about this young man and about his circumstances, and he's playing on that. He just set them all in order when they sat down to banquet and feast together from the oldest to the youngest. To them, this plays into the idea this man has some kind of supernatural wisdom that no human being is capable of. This silver cup, uh, the cup by which he performs divination, he's playing on that mindset. Verse 6, 
So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Now in the past, it wouldn't have been far from them at all. Their behavior is despicable. Uh, but over time, they've learned to be above reproach. Uh, remember, as I said, they had the money put back in their sacks once. They brought that money and first thing made sure that the servants of Pharaoh understood, hey, when we came here previously and paid for grain, when we got home, we found all of our money back in our you know, traveling cases, and we've made sure that we kept it intact. And here it is again, and we have more money to pay for the new grain we've come here to purchase. So we're, we're not men that would behave in a way that is criminal. Verse 8, look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from the Lord's house? With whomever your servant it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. Oh, they've set themselves up oh, with the mouth you know, the words of their own mouth and what's going to transpire in front of them. He said, now also let it be according to your words. And so um, Joseph's steward that's come out to meet them said, oh, okay, if that's the way we're going to do it, then fine. It'll be exactly like you said. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground and each opened his sack so he searched and began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. You guys, think about this for a second. This steward is in on the game. He knows what's going on. He knows where the silver cup is. So he's just stringing them along, right? Because their money's in each one of their sacks. So open the first sack. Oh, oh, so you're such honest men. Why is this money here, right? And work your way through every one of them until you get to the last. And there's sort of a brokenheartedness because the money's back in their sacks. And at the same time, at least they haven't found this silver cup and they're going to get to this point. He, he's toying with them as much as Joseph is also. So he searched, began the oldest, left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. This is uh, something uh, that is the most profound sign of grief, when, when a person would just rear back and rip open their clothes. Clothes were incredibly valuable. It's, it's not like uh, you're going to just go home and find another change of clothes. Most of these people had one garment. One only. So you know, the, uh, if they had two, uh, they were well off. You're going to see you know, Joseph gives his brother five changes of clothing. So within this, they are overwhelmed with grief and uh, what they are experiencing. They load the donkeys, return to the city. Verse 14, so Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. He was still there. They fell before him. On the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? So again, he's not practicing divination. And as we talked about in the past, 
when it was implied that Joseph practiced divination or had supernatural power, he was quick to correct those thoughts and statements and give glory to God. Look at Genesis 40, verse 8. They said to him, we each had a dream. This is the stewards who are in jail, and there is no interpretation of it. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? He doesn't say, oh, I, I have a supernatural power and I'm capable of interpreting dreams. Let me interpret that for you. He puts the capability in God's hands. As we talked about, when those men were restored to their position and told Pharaoh in Genesis 41, beginning at verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. The Egyptians are very superstitious people who worship a huge host of different gods. So their mindset is certain people have certain powers. The pharaohs declared themselves as being gods amongst their people. So he's playing on this idea, trying to create in their thinking a distance from himself and them. They worship Jehovah, Yahweh, the one true living God, you know, the God of the Hebrews. You know, they, they know in their minds that there is no other God. Now, here's this pagan Egyptian who has some kind of power. He seats us in order. He interprets dreams. You know, he has this cup of divination. This wicked, you know, king, this wicked uh, leader of the Egyptians is now you know, put us into this trap is sort of what they're saying. Look at verse 16. Then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? In other words, there's nothing we can say. I mean, we've been caught red-handed. There's, there's nothing we can do about the circumstance we currently find ourselves in. How can we say anything? Or how shall we clear ourselves. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. He's not, Judah is not referring to the money or the silver cup. He's referring to the fact that they put Joseph in the hole and then sold him off into slavery. He's, he's got this idea of, you know, Christian karma. You know, I, I hate that statement. I hate, I hate those bummer, you know, instant karma. That is, that is, you know, a complete oxymoron. There's no, you know, Hinduism teaching karma and, you know, Buddhism and its mindset of you're going to, you know, in another life experience, uh, you know, what you have done in this life has nothing to do with the spiritual law of reaping and sowing. Okay. Uh, the spiritual law of reaping and sowing is as sure-fired as gravity. Right? God designed these laws, and they are so true that when they transpire, people who don't want to believe in the Bible try to affix things to them that don't even exist. Karma doesn't exist. You know, you're not going to experience another go-round in this life 
and get to try and fix or make up for whatever you've done in this lifetime. There's one pass through, and that's it. That's an entirely different religious belief system. Reaping and sowing, very true in this lifetime and in eternity. The things you do, you're going to experience. You're going to reap that back to yourself. We're, we're warned throughout the scripture to you know, plant to the spiritual rather than the fleshly because we're going to have to reap what we have sown. Now, this whole understanding, you know, Judah here saying there's nothing we can do. We, you know, we're guilty men. You know, we, how shall we speak? We can't clear ourselves. We've been found out you know, for the iniquity. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Back in Genesis chapter 37, looking at verse 26, Judas said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brothers listened. We learn that Judah was trying to spare Joseph's life. While he was guilty in hating his brother and guilty in selling him off into slavery, everyone else wanted to kill him. The first opportunity that comes to not kill him, he puts in his peace. So Judah's had a heart along the way that's slightly different than the brothers. And we see it again here and that he's going to make a plea in verse 17. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The men in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah came near to him. You don't do that without permission. You don't come near to the Pharaoh's servant. So there's a great deal of humility involved in Judah approaching Joseph in this moment, came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. The idea is, can I speak to you alone for a minute? Can I have a private conversation with you? And do not let your anger burn against your servant. For you even you are even like Pharaoh. I understand you have the same authority as Pharaoh. I'm not deceiving myself as to you know, what you can do with your power. Verse 19, my Lord asked his servants saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead and he alone is left to my mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, notice how he's continuously making all of this family, Joseph's servants, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. 
if your youngest or our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me. And I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it would happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servant will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. So Judah is now explaining to Joseph, I put myself up as surety for Benjamin. If Benjamin doesn't go home to our father, then I'm required to pay for that. So he's making the plea here. You know, your servant surety for the lad for my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall surely be the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord. Let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? In this, Judah is a clear type of Jesus Christ, substituting himself for his younger brother. The theme of the entire scripture is substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ took our punishment upon himself all through the Old Testament as the Jews are sacrificing animals. Those animals are dying in the place of the person was guilty of the sin. Here, Judah puts himself in that place. It's a wonderful picture to see someone who's sacrificing himself. You think of Jesus saying there's no greater love than one would lay down his life for his brother. Again, Joseph's been testing them to see if this is true repentance. All along the way, he wants to see, have they changed? Have they grown? You know, Do these men even have a relationship with God Yet, they were a bunch of lying, murderous, hate-filled men when he was last in their company. He's looking for the change, the true repentance. Proverbs 28:13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. These men have been covering up their sins for their whole lives. They're finally coming to the place where they're confessing their sins and they're forsaking them. They're, they're behaving in the exact opposite way. Rather than trying to sacrifice their brother for their own good, let's get rid of this guy so that we can continue to party and do the things we used to. We won't have this snitch showing up on our job site going back and telling our father about the things we're doing. We'll kill him off and be done with that problem, rather than being motivated by their sinful selfishness as they used to be, 
they now have a heart that says, I'm willing to die for my brother. This is exactly what Joseph has been looking for throughout this whole process. He knows how God's been working in his heart uh, through the difficulties, the challenges, the imprisonment, the false accusations, the forgetfulness of other people who should have remembered him and helped him be free of prison years before he was finally set free. He's learned what he's needed to learn, and he's looking at these men saying, have they learned anything through this process? Their character and behavior has completely changed here. This is what John the Baptist meant when he said, Matthew chapter 3, verse out, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. We need to see in your life the fruit that you've actually changed, right? So many people say they've changed, and yet their behavior is the same as it has ever been. Nothing's changed at all. The fruit of our repentance needs to be present. Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer, for they were dismayed in his presence. You can only imagine what this moment is like for these guys. They've betrayed Joseph. They've hated him. They beat him and then threw him into that pit before they sold him off to the slave traders that were traveling through the area. The whole time he's been communicating with them, we are told in the previous chapters, that he's speaking through an interpreter. So he speaks Egyptian. The the interpreter interprets it into Hebrew. They speak in Hebrew. The interpreter interprets it back to Joseph in Egyptian. They totally think Joseph is Egyptian. And suddenly he proclaims himself as being their brother. I mean, this is a knee-jerk, jaw-drop moment like you just cannot even imagine. They're struck in this moment. I can't imagine imagine the fear. Can you imagine the fear? Okay, the guilt has plagued them throughout this whole moment. The guilt has plagued them till this very second because they are as guilty as sin. They're as guilty as the sin they participated in. And then the realization that their judgment is standing right in front of them. This idea, you know, some people have about God Right? You've heard people say things like, oh, you have it right, God, eternity. I mean, I meet God. I get, I get into heaven. I got a thing or two I'm going to say to God. You're not going to say anything. Your mouth is going to be clamped shut so tight when you finally stand in the presence of God. You and I, we are all guilty. Right? That's where we all go, amen. You know what I'm saying? We are so guilty. Even under the blood of Christ, forgiven of our sins, we are guilty. We're probably guilty of this morning. And we're going to stand in the presence of God. And he's going to forgive us. Because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ. He's going to forgive us. This is an amazing picture of eternity right here. Step into the presence of the one who holds all of the authority. Even the fact, you guys, even the fact that Joseph is actually 
the second in command, but he holds all the power of the first in command. The father sits upon the throne, and yet the son sits upon the throne. It's an amazing picture right here. It demonstrates you know, the Trinity. It holds up all that we believe and understand of the Scripture. Substitutionary atonement as Judas steps forward. You know, Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. It's an interesting passage of Scripture. They're dismayed in his presence. I would think so. Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. Isn't that what Jesus said to us, right? Said to the disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. The graciousness of God. Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now... Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Notice this. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Wow. I'm not sure I would have had that mindset. This, this is truly a man who is filled with the Spirit of God. He's got the, he's got the opportunity here to pour out all of the bitterness and the vengeance and the wrath that has built up for over 20 years. And instead, he's saying, you guys didn't do this to me. God did this to me, and it was for good. Here, here is why Joseph is such a divine example for all believers to follow. He recognizes that what the Scripture is saying in the New Testament about how all things work together for the good of them that love God and are the called according to His purpose is absolutely true. I haven't been imprisoned by my brothers. God sent me here, right? We hear Paul saying in the New Testament, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's been imprisoned because of the Jews. The Romans currently hold the keys to the bars that keep him incarcerated. And he says, no, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Thank God Paul was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. We might not have known any of what he communicated to the church if he'd not been in prison and needed to write letters. And now we have all of the letters. You know, more than one-third of the New Testament written by Paul. An excellent Example of those who understand God is in control of my life. He sent me before you to preserve life. Not just theirs, the entire world's from this famine. For these two years, <coughs> the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve a posterity of uh, for you in the earth and save your lives by a great deliverance, for now it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house, a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt, a father to Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh is father of all Egypt. That's their position, it's their title, it's the way they're thought of. Here, you know, we don't get the impression that Joseph sort of leans forward and whispers, you know, I'm actually the father of Pharaoh. I, you know, I have the authority of a father over Pharaoh. No, he says it with a boldness that's recorded in the scripture. Pharaoh is leaning on Joseph in this way, looking to him this way. I make the point because some people struggle with the Trinity and whether Jesus is in fact God. 
Look at the first chapter of Hebrews again and see there God the Father saying to God the Son, you're God the Father. It's a remarkable thing. A remarkable thing. The, the Trinity is even reflected here in this passage. The truth of God's deity. Hurry, go up to your father. Say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. And you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, and there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of your brother Benjamin, see, it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. That's interesting to me. It's these men's hunger and their poverty that has brought them to the feet of the Son that's going to give them life. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are impoverished. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The picture is just glaring here. What are they supposed to do now that they find themselves in the presence of the Son? Go back to those who are starving and impoverished and share the message of life and fruit and food with them. Bring them into my presence is what's being taught. It's an amazing picture. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck, keeping in mind that Benjamin was around three years old when Joseph left their household. So Benjamin probably has little to no memory of Joseph at all, just the stories. And now here he's being you know, rushed into this idea of Joseph's power and capability. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Now, it must have been a lot of, I'm sorry, please forgive me, right? Imagine all the things that are said. Now, the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and all his servants well. Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your household and come to me. I will give you the best of the land in Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. And also do not concern, excuse me, do not be concerned about your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. See, the Father has prepared a place for them to come to, Pharaoh, and is saying to the son, Joseph, who has all the authority of the Father, but you see the submission and the power that's here to bring them into this place. It reminded me of Matthew chapter 6, looking at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither 
moth nor rust destroy where thieves do not break in and steal. Don't concern yourself with the things of home. Leave them. You know, bring what you need to. I have everything you'll need. Verse 21, then the sons of Israel, that's Jacob, whose name has been changed to Israel by God, did so. <clears throat> Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. Gave them, uh, He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin he gave uh, <clears throat> 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. He sent his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for their for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed, and he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. I was actually somewhat tempted to make that this week's memory verse. You know, it, it doesn't hold a lot of potency outside the context. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed, and he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. But if you take that last reference, right, it holds power for us. There's a long journey from where we currently are to the presence of the king and his son. And you can become troubled along the way. Why? Because there's lots of trouble along the way. And here he's being commanded by the king, don't be. Remember John 14, beginning at verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In verse 2, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare, prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's the same message. Don't be troubled along the way. Verse 25, Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father, and they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. Jacob's heart stood still. You know, skipped a beat, we might say. Just the, the awe of the moment, because he did not believe them. And when they told him, all the words which Joseph had said to them. And when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. The idea of all of life's burdens sort of shed off. Then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. There is so much sorrow and struggle in this life. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. You're going to constantly be met with difficulty. It's much, much better for your mindset if you settle your heart on that, right? And humanity rebels against God in the Garden of Eden. God pronounces a curse upon the entire human race, saying, particularly to Adam, who was told previously, you're going to have to tend the Garden of Eden. We don't know particularly what that meant, right? Some people you know, imply that there was going to have to be pruning and worked out. Well, there was no death. 
Well, you know, what was what was they were going to have to do to tend the garden? Look, there's going to be so much fruit. You're going to have to continuously be harvesting. Life, life was going to be so good and so abundant, maybe. But they were going to have to work in the garden. It just wasn't going to be toil and labor like we experience today. Once sin enters into the picture, God says to Adam, you know, in toil and sweat, you now have to go going to get what you need in life. And the ground is going to yield to you thorns and thistles. Weeds is what you're going to experience, right? For every square acre of land there is in the whole world, there is more than a ton and a quarter of weed seeds already in that soil. And anyone who's planted a garden knows exactly what I'm talking about. The greater portion of the labor is the constant weeding or the constant putting down of whatever mulch and things you can to keep the weeds from going, to kill it off. The ground yields weed, you know, thorns back to us, hard labor. We have this mentality, especially here in the Western world, that life should be easy. Right? And, we, and we ingrain that uh, constantly, right? We want our children to experience as much ease. We don't want them to have the hardships that we did. You're better off to teach them right from the beginning, life is hard, right? I'm not talking about being abusive. I'm talking about teaching them that it's going to be labor. Embrace that. To, to try and create an environment, a mentality of comfort and ease is to say, I will not submit to the curse that God has placed on the human race. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to rebel against God. That will torment your heart and mind. Because everything that's going to constantly come is going to be through difficulty, labor, and intensity. If we move our eyes up off from this earth to eternity, right? Because we're told... This is our temporary dwelling place. So you go through the hardship for the goal of eternity and the presence of God. If we can fix our eyes outside this world, then everything becomes easier. I think, personally, for the believer, this is what I've seen, is when the believer tries to create that environment of comfort and peace here, God almost seems to thwart the plan to tinker with it for our benefit, right? Because if we could become comfortable, if we could become you know, affluent and you know, experience the great pleasures of this world, we might take our eyes off him and fix him on the things of the world. It's a graciousness of God to keep us from being content in this world. And so it is here. That Israel is recognizing, no, it is enough that my son is alive. I'm going to fix my eyes upon the next step of where I'm being taken by the Lord. Look at John 16, Jesus speaking, verse 21. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Verse 22, Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. 
fix your eyes upon your eternal home. Don't fix them on the things of the earth. It only creates discontentment. The joy in this life comes from gazing upon the sun and knowing the promises that he provides for us. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we thank you so much for your great grace, your love, your work in our lives, our hearts, and our minds. Father, we would ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We recognize to some degree we're Joseph. It's much easier to recognize that we are those sinful brothers. Lord, help us by your strength. Change us as you did their father from being Jacob, a man who caused other people to stumble, to being Israel, a man who was governed by God. Lord, we long for that. Long to be in your presence. Long to be free of this struggle. Until then, please, lend us your strength. Help us to walk. Cause us to be obedient. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.